That is Matthew chapter 12. We'll start reading in verse 1, and we will read down to verse 14. We'll pray, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Father, uh, I pray that that there would be expectant hearts in the seats today, Lord. That having discussed the truth project and recognizing that uh, these are the things that point us to you that we live in a confusing world, in a complicated world, and many, many, many that we know are without direction, without a compass, without an anchor, without a foundation, without anything firm or solid or stable. And Lord, I thank you that you have put under us a rock that is unmovable, that is constant, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that if we put our trust in you, Lord, you are faithful and you will not let us be ashamed. So, Father, as we open up your word, I pray that with everything in us, we would listen and think and consider our own ways, Lord. And that we would hear from you and and yield ourselves to you to be conformed uh, into your image and not the image of the world. Lord, we want to be like you for as long as we have on this earth. And we trust you for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen and Amen. Well, last week we were in Matthew chapter 11. We finished that up with the very, very common and familiar words where Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. And we talked about that was a rest for your psyche, for your soul. Uh, It was in response to the question I asked, is anyone tired? And of course we were. Now that was last Sunday. This week has been a tough week, hasn't it? 
It started off with an earthquake, which, by the way, our well went brown, and so I am unshaven. Uh, I'm not making a statement or anything like that. I just, it's just not fun shaving with brown water. Uh, so, but our well went brown, and, and so we had the earthquake. It ended with fears of hurricane, and, and in the midst of it, uh, many of you know we wrestle and have wrestled through a uh, death of a young girl in our community who evidently, uh, I did not know her personally or her family, but evidently um, she was uh, quite a girl and had many, many friends and relationships in the community. So it's been a tough week. And as I labored over you know, Matthew chapter 12, I just prayed, Lord, you know, we're going to be reading about Jesus and his disciples eating grain in a field on the Sabbath. I mean, Lord, how can, how can this minister to the people this morning? And so as I continued to spend time in the Word, I think that the Lord, you know, began to show me how this might minister to us in the midst of crazy days. I mean, these are weird and strange times we live in. The world literally is shaken. We have starvation in Somalia and, and, and on and on we could make the list. So my question is this morning, last week it was, are you, is anyone tired This morning's question is, is your life too complicated? Is your life too complicated? We live in a very complicated world. I mean, I have like 30 passwords and 30 usernames for different accounts on the computer. And uh, life has gotten very complicated. We have cell phones and, and all that stuff was supposed to make life easier, wasn't it? But did it really? Did it, re- it, it really did sort of made things, when, when we have to cancel church for like snow, we have to put that in like four or five different places. You know, it's got to go on the computer, it's got to go on the phone because some people don't have the computers, and it just, it's got complicated. School for kids, I think, has got more complicated. When I went to school, we could like fit everything in a backpack. Now they carry duffel bags and luggage to school to fit all the books, and it's complicated. And I wish I could say I was above all that, but I'm in it with you guys trying to figure out. I sit down with Helga and we say, our lives are too complicated. How can we simplify? How can we get back to what's important? And that's what this kind of week does for us, church. It makes us say what's really important, what really matters. Just an example of how complicated our world is. highly recommend this book, by the way. It's called The Overload Syndrome. Richard Swenson, a doctor, wrote this book. Um, We have worn out a couple of copies and given out many. Uh, Excellent book for our day and age. Here's how complicated our world is. There are 55 medical specialties. Now, this is a few years outdated, so it's probably even more complicated now. Um, 60 different kinds of Muzak. That's the elevator music. 80 different blood pressure medicines. 93 brands of bottled water at an Amsterdam boutique. 125 kinds of yogurt, 126 kinds of subcompact cars, 177 kinds of salad dressing, 184 breakfast cereals, 249 kinds of soap, 250 kinds of toothpaste, 450 English language versions of the Bible, 500 bachelor degrees offered in college, 551 kinds of coffee, of which some of you drink all. 1,200 new business books every year, and I'm going to just shorten the list a little bit here, 2,500 types of light bulbs in one store alone, 4,500 new children's books every year, 5,000 magazines, 58,000 new book or new editions every year, 
one million titles from Barnes & Noble online, and 25 million different versions of automobiles when all possible combinations of styles, opinion, uh, options, and colors are taken into account. We live in a complicated world. And as I read this passage, I can see that in Jesus' day, the religious world was also very complicated. I mean, for me, church is a refuge. And the last thing I want to see, the church is not Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. And, and we need to be careful not to make the same mistakes that, that the, the Jews made in their day. We need to be careful to learn from them and not to repeat the mistakes that they had made. Because this is my refuge. This is where I hope we can stay simple. And some of you have seen the complication that can arise out of church. There's church politics. And, you know, I always say poly means many and a tick is a blood-sucking animal. And church can be filled with politics. And we develop rules and all of these things to try to control and, and it condemns and, and it can get to be a real burden. And I think people have left the church because they've seen uh, just the burden and the complication and the complexity. Now, again, understand complex is different than organized. Something can be simple and organized. And I'm not saying God doesn't like order. He does. Look at the world around us. But so something can be simple and yet organized. But the thing we have to be careful about is adding complexity, adding hoops to church that God never designed to be there. We are called to walk by faith, not by law. We are called to live according to the spirit, not according to the rules. Okay? So how did Jesus navigate that in his day? Two things. Two things. He knew the word of God, and he knew the heart of God. And we'll see that as we go through. So, in Jesus' day, things had got complex. He is constantly coming in conflict with the Jews about the complexity of the way that they've made it in coming to God. Look, coming to God is supposed to be simple and open. It's a narrow gate it's through Jesus Christ, but it shouldn't be a lot of layers of things to get through. And in Jesus' day, there were. And we'll talk about that in just a second as we get into the first verse. He says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So at that time, it connects it to what we just read when Jesus was talking about giving people rest. Now, when you say the word rest to a Jew, he automatically thinks, he or she automatically thinks one word, Sabbath. That's the day of rest. For the Jew, it's Saturday. For everybody, it's Saturday. Sunday is not the church Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. First day of the week is Sunday. Sabbath is the seventh day. It's the day, literally, Sabbath means to cease or to end or to rest. And, and Sabbath just goes right back to creation. As a matter of fact, the Jews only had a name for one day of the week. They didn't have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They had six days until Sabbath, five days until Sabbath, four days till Sabbath, and then finally, it's Sabbath. Their whole world revolved around this day of rest. And so just a couple of quick verses so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, Genesis 2, 1 to 2, thus the heavens and earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified. He set it apart uh, because in it, he rested from all his work, 
which God had created and made. That's Genesis 2, 1 to 2. Exodus 20, verse 8 and following says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath or the rest of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant. You can't open your business. You can't send out your workers. Nobody is supposed to, you're supposed to give everybody a rest. Your car gets a rest. Your donkey gets a rest. All that stuff. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. I think you get the point. So this is what God, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Old Testament says about the Sabbath. And in our culture, maybe you've come across it, the Sabbath is a big controversial issue among especially some pseudo-Christian cults and people will lay a heavy trip on you. Man, why do you go to church on Sunday? You're going to hell if you go to church on Sunday because Saturday's the Sabbath. That's the real day to worship. So maybe you have encountered those things in the past, this heavy you know, trip that people lay on you because you go to church Sunday and all of that. But we are the church. This is dealing with Israel. Um, let's read on a little bit. So it's the Sabbath day. It's this day of rest. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So they're walking through the field and they're eating. You know, it's like going through a cornfield and grabbing off an ear of corn and start to munch on it while you're traveling. And the Pharisees who evidently are stalking Jesus, and that's not a cornfield joke per se. It could be, I suppose. But they're watching him. They're trying to catch him because he just upsets them. So when they saw it, they said to him, Look, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Hey, hey, Jesus, your disciples are doing something wrong. And you need to correct that. You need to take care of that. Well, what were they doing that was so wrong? What was it that was against the law? I mean, I think the first thing we would say is, man, they're stealing someone else's corn. I mean, this is, this is good old Fluvanna County. I mean, if I see you in my cornfield, I'm getting my gun, and I'm coming out there. Get out of my cornfield. No, I, would, I don't own a gun. But, uh, but that's the idea is that we would think, hey, stealing, that's what they're doing wrong. But the, uh, the law allowed for them to do this. Deuteronomy 23, 25, I'm not going to read it to you, but what it said was that if you come into somebody's field, you're traveling, and you couldn't stop at Mickey D's and grab a burger and a Coke. You're traveling, and you're hungry. There's no fast food except for this kind of fast food where you're, you're going through a field, and you had the right. You, you couldn't bring your harvester to your neighbor's field and just start mowing down the cornfield and throwing it in, in your barn. But you could pick off a head of corn and eat it while you were traveling. That was allowable. Matter of fact, if you were poor, someone who owned a big orchard or a big field would leave some of the fruit there so that the poor could come along and and have something to eat. They could get some food. So God had allowed for this. So it wasn't that they were stealing. It wasn't that that was wrong. The problem was the day on which they were doing this. It was the day of rest, and that was their issue. Their issue was, hey, this is supposed to be a day of rest. God said, don't work. And you guys are breaking that. Now, I read to you what the Bible said. God said, on it you shall do no work. Did God define work? No. So these wonderful and and maybe not so well-meaning, maybe well-intentioned religious leaders of the day decided that they wanted to keep that Sabbath just right. 
So they had to define what work was. So they set out to define this and to quantify it so that everybody could know that they were keeping the the Sabbath properly. Uh, They were not allowed to prepare food. Anything that would change, bring a change to the environment or change food. So you couldn't boil food because that would change the food. So you couldn't cook. You couldn't carry anything heavier than two dried figs. Now, who decided that? Two dried figs. So if you wore false teeth, guess what? On the Sabbath, you're out of luck. You got to leave them in the jar with the pepsidin or whatever it is uh, that, that you put them in. So you, you got to leave them. You can't wear them because they're too heavy. That's carrying a burden on the Sabbath. You can't light a fire on the Sabbath because, again, that would change something. So that means you can't use, now in their day it didn't matter, but in our day you can't use electricity, anything electric. You can't drive a combustion engine car because that kindles a fire. Uh, To this day, if you're in heavily populated Jewish areas where there are Jewish businessmen and Jewish families that live and and do work, they have a Sabbath elevator. Because if you get on the elevator and you push the button for the floor you want to go to, what happens to that button? It lights up, right? Well, that means inside of that button, a fire was kindled, and it lit up. So, you, so the Sabbath elevator, to get around this, it just stops at every floor automatically. It's just programmed, and it stops at every floor. And so you get off on the floor you want, and, and you don't have to push the button so you can keep the Sabbath. So that's how, how much they, they, this was their deal. This was their issue. This was not things that God said. This was their interpretation and understanding of what, what God meant. So... 39 categories of things that they came up with. I'll read some of them. These are the things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Sow, plow, reap, thresh, winnow, select, grind, sift, knead, bake, shear wool, wash wool, beat wool, dye wool. Dye wool be done. Oh. <laughs> Let's move on. Spinning <laughs> quickly. Weaving, you can't make two loops. You can't wear, weave two threads. You can't separate two threads. You can't tie or untie. You can't sew two stitches, tear, trap, slaughter, flay, salt meat, cure hide, tear down a building, extinguish a fire, kindle a fire, hit with a hammer, so on and so on. 39 categories to explain when God said, in it you shall do no work. You see, God's law is simple. But then we, human beings, get involved, and we make it complicated. And what was meant to be a blessing to me, to you, and to the Jews became a burden. And that's why Jesus said, I will give you rest. I'm going to set you free from all of these man-made additions and interpretations to what I said to do. Just rest. And, And Mark adds, look, man was not made for the Sabbath but the Sabbath for man. When God says take a day of rest, it's not because he's just you know, trying to be mean or wants you not to have any fun. When God says take a day of rest, it's for your good. It's for your good. And I still think it applies. I still think it's good to have a day where you're just not trying to get ahead. You're not trying to beat out that guy to work harder than him, to make more money. If you can't make it in six days, folks, then you definitely can't make it in seven. You're going to end up in a hospital bed somewhere with stuff plugged into you, and then you'll get three weeks of rest or three months of rest, right, when you suffer a heart attack. So, so this is the issue with the Sabbath. Now, how does Jesus deal with this? He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and, and those with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the show of bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, 
nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So his first example is he goes back to David. They would have thought David was a wonderful, godly man. Uh, He was a great king. They would have had great respect for him. And they said, Jesus says, well, haven't you guys read in 1 Samuel 21 what David did? This is before David was king. He was on the run from King Saul being chased and his life was at risk. And he he runs where? To the tabernacle. It was before the temple, the the big godly tent that was in the wilderness there. And, And he says, hey, we're on the run. We're hungry. We haven't had time to eat. We don't know where we're going. Do you have any food around here? I I know there's this stuff called the showbread, which is just every week the priests made 12 loaves of bread. And they put it out there before the Lord to represent God's provision for the nation of Israel. 12 tribes, 12 loaves. And every Sunday, or excuse me, every Saturday, every Sabbath day, they would put out, take away the old loaves from the last Saturday, and they would put in the new loaves. But only the priests were supposed to eat that, according to the law. Only the priests were supposed to eat it. So David shows up. He says, hey, we're hungry. The priest says, uh, I don't have any food except here. This is the showbread. And I, it's, it's the Sabbath because the priest says, I just took out the old bread and I'm putting in the new. So it was Saturday. It was the Sabbath. He says, you can have that. David eats it. God never condemns him. God doesn't say, woe to you, David. You know, that was wrong. So if David, in a time of need when he was hungry, uh, could eat that bread, maybe that was more important than what God had said about keeping the Sabbath, uh, about, about keeping the Sabbath day holy and not eating those things on the Sabbath, and about only the preceding those things. So here's a, a classic example, Jesus says, where someone did, they ate went what was wrong to eat out of a certain necessity. Second thing he says. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? So he goes now to the second example. He says, hey guys, hey Pharisees that are, that are wanting to condemn and point fingers, have you thought about the priests in the temple? When everybody comes to worship on the Sabbath, the priests are hard at work. Matter of fact, they do double work on the Sabbath. Twice as many sacrifices. They're carting big animals around. They're having to engage in butchering those animals and those types of things. It's very hard work as a priest. And yet, the commandment says, don't do any work on the Sabbath. Yet, for the sake of the temple and the worship of God to minister to the people, the priests were allowed to break the Sabbath to work. Matter of fact, it was part of their commandment for them to work on that day. So he says, have you guys thought about that? Now, before I go on, I want to make a a little application here. Twice now, Jesus has said, have you not read? Did you see that? Once with David, he says, haven't you guys read? And then here, he says again, or haven't you read? And I think this is one of the ways that Jesus can live so confidently and peacefully in the face of religious pressure, in the face of religious uh, obligation, all those things. Jesus knew, I mean, he was the word of God, but he also knew the word of God. And he was able to say, hey, here are some applications of the word of God to my situation right now. You know, my question is, is have you read? Have you read? They had read. The problem wasn't that they didn't understand. The problem was they had focused so much on what the one part they thought was important and more important to the exclusion of all the other things that they overlooked some really important things. And we can become, in our Bible reading and in church, we can become very unbalanced in our understanding of the Word of God. 
That's why we take this church through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, just like the Apostle Paul said, I have not shunned from bringing you the whole counsel of God's word. Otherwise, you can fall subject to religious condemnation and religious obligation. When if you just looked at the word of God, you said, well, that's not really what the word of God says. There's this other story over here that might apply to my situation. And the Spirit of God helps you understand how to apply those things. Look, someone once said, and I think wisely so, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Isn't that good? It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Many folks, pastors, this is why, again, one of, not my pet peeves, but one of my things is, you know, I'm not a big fan of topical sermons, and there's a reason. Because I could say today, I'm going to preach on salvation, and I could find those verses that prove my desire or what I want to teach you about salvation. There's a lot of verses in the Bible on salvation, aren't there? There's a lot of different verses from Old Testament, from New Testament. We have to do a topical teaching well. You have to cover all the bases, the things you're comfortable with and the things you're not comfortable with. You have to look at the whole picture. So in 25 minutes or 30 minutes to do a good topical sermon thoroughly, it's just very difficult. I'm not able. So as we go through the whole counsel of the word of God, you guys are now equipped to have rest and understand what is God's will for me? What is God's will for my family? Not what does the pastor necessarily say or what does the denomination say or what, are the, what does the rule book say? It's a whole different deal. And so because Jesus knew the word of God, he says, to him, look, hey, He's able to give an answer, isn't he? He's able to come back. Here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you should be able to. We should, as a church, be able to look into the the word of God and say, hey, here's why we do what we do. Here's why we go through the whole Bible. Here's why we go through verse by verse. Here's why we don't wear, here's why I don't wear robes and and a pointy hat or anything like that, you know? And then maybe they should be able to say, here's why I do. And, And we need to be able to have these conversations with people in our community. So he says, have you not read? You need to read. You need to know what God says to you. You need to know what the word of God says. Now, he says, okay, the priests, David, and then he goes on to say, yes, I say to you that in this place, verse 6, there is one greater than the temple. Who's the one greater than the temple? Jesus is the one greater than the temple. So listen to Jesus' reasoning. He's saying, look, if the priests are able to work on the Sabbath, because they're serving the Lord at his command and serving in the temple, then shouldn't the disciples be allowed to do work in service and as they're serving me? Remember, what the disciples were guilty of, according to the Pharisees, would have been as they went through the grain fields, they would have been uh, reaping. They were grabbing the little grains that was reaping to them. And they would have been threshing. They would rub them in their hands to get the husks off. They were threshing, and then they were winnowing as the, as the, the uh, covering, the, the husk of the grain would be blown away in the wind. That was winnowing, and then they would prepare food by eating it. That's what they were guilty of in, in the Pharisee's mind. And he says, look, if they're serving me and, and I'm greater than the temple, then, then shouldn't, that, shouldn't it be okay? If it's okay for the priest? Are you following the reasoning? You see the, the logical argument? But look at this next sentence. He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, here's where we get to the heart of God. 
See, it's one thing to know the Word of God, and a lot of people know the Word of God and proceed to beat other people up with it, right? Here's what you should be doing and, and condemning, condemning. Look, do you know how many innocent people are, get condemned in church? How many guiltless people get condemned in church by people that know the Word of God but don't know the heart of God? And that's the second thing you need to know. You need to know the Word of God and you need to know the heart of God. And here is where Jesus says, this is what you should have known. You know a lot about your own rules, but here's what you should have known. That if you, if you're, if you want to get into Old Testament stuff, here's something else God said. He said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now that was from Hosea chapter 6. Hosea was a, a prophet of the Old Testament times. He prophesied during a time when the nation was in a terrible spiritual mess. There were, other, there were people from other nations there. Those Wednesday night folks, when we're in 2 Kings, this is, it's a, Hosea prophesied during Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, during those, uh, reign, those rulers in Israel. And it was a time when there was a lot of pagan worship. There was, you would go to worship God here, and then you'd worship this other God over here, and this other God, you'd take your sacrifices here, because I want to make sure that God's not mad at me. And then I take my sacrifices here, and I want to make sure that God's not mad at me. And then all over the place. And you know what that produced in them culturally? They were a mess morally, too. And if you read Hosea, you'll read it. Um, one of the verses, Gilead is a city of evildoers, Hosea 6, 8. And it just goes on and on. Their, their, their mess spiritually created a mess morally between people. And it is still the same th- that happens today. Our mess spiritually, if we are in one, if we're in a thousand directions, will create a moral mess for us culturally. And we see that happening right before our eyes. So God says, and through, through uh, Hosea, Look, it's wonderful that you're giving all these sacrifices, but the Bible says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. What I really desire, folks, listen up. This is for Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, today. What God says, here's what I desire. Not that you bring your offering and not that you, you know, do all these wonderful things and so you put some money in the plate, but I want you to think about the way you deal with people. What really matters when earthquakes are shaking when people are dying, what really matters is mercy. Not your rules and regulations and the things that you have felt are right and wrong and, and have no biblical foundation. Matter of fact, maybe I'll take this, this uh, opportunity to read. Oh, if I brought it, where did I put it? I brought a letter that I got. Well, let's see if it's in here somewhere. I don't know where I put it. Um, I got a letter the other day uh, to our church, uh, someone we'd been helping out and, and ministering to and the letter proceeded to talk about, uh, they had been to the church twice, and, and it talked about how uh, this person was very disappointed with the way that some of the women in this church were dressing, and the shorts were too tight, and the blouses were too tight, and, and as I read it, I just felt that righteous indignation, you know, where I uh, just boil up within me. And, and, you know, the person went on to say that, you know, I think uh, that people should wear pants and all these things, and I just, just began to Think on that. You know, what is the answer? Do, do we then put rules in place that say, okay, here's how everyone has to dress now. We're going to have a dress code. You know, the school's got a dress code. Now we're the church and we're going to have to have a dress code. No. No, no, and a thousand times no. Because then how do you decide? Who decides what too short is? 
who decides what too long is? How do, you know, do we get the measuring sticks out? Do we stand at the door? The greeters now have bulletins and measuring sticks. And let's talk about the guys, too, while we're at it. You know, I mean, guys can be guilty of the same kind of stuff. But do you see the, the, the problems that can cause? Yeah, we talk about modesty. And it, just like Sabbath, God doesn't define modest. There's an ear to culture. There's an ear to, to wor- the Word of God. And every believer has to work out for themselves when they come across the Bible teaching about modesty. What does that mean? And your idea of modesty might change. But you see what I'm saying when I say we can't just recreate what, what the, the same pitfalls that the, the Pharisees fell into because then we end up condemning the guiltless. We have to know the heart of God and we have to know the word of it. Now, it's not that we're not going to share the truth about modesty and those types of things. Absolutely, those are important issues. But we have to spend time working that out by the power of the Spirit convicting in our lives and working in our lives and, and all of that. The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what, folks? There's freedom. There's liberty. And the minute we start to add stuff to that, we begin to fall into the same trap and we condemn the guiltless. So, he goes on to say, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he, he claims to be God uh, right there. Who, who instituted the Sabbath on, on, back at, in Genesis? God did. So if Jesus says, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, I mean the one that creates it is the one that gets to decide how it's worshipped, right? And so if God created it, God decides how it's worshipped, not the Pharisees. And so Jesus is saying, basically, I'm God, and I am in charge of deciding how the Sabbath is to be kept, how it's to be worshipped. So let's move on. We have a few more minutes here to do this. One more story uh, about a man with a withered hand. So he departed from there. Uh, we learn in another gospel that it's the next Sabbath. It's not the same day. And he went into their synagogue. And there's that great word we love again, behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. So all the attention, Jesus is in the synagogue. There's lots of people there. There's music, there's reading. And all the attention is focused on who? A guy that either, whether he had a stroke or whether he had a birth defect or whether he had an injury, whatever it was, don't know, left hand, right hand, he's got this hand that is paralyzed. It's useless. And he's in the synagogue. And my guess is that this guy probably was just trying to skirt his way in and skirt his way out, probably you know, keeps this hand hidden, maybe not wanting people to see it or to know. So uh, they ask him, saying, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to he- heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask? What does the Bible said? Because they want to know the answer? Because they're trying to learn from Jesus? No. They're just looking to accuse him. They weren't interested. See, this is the problem. They were unteachable. They were not able to look at the things in their life that didn't line up with Jesus and with the Word of God. And and you have to be careful of that. Because as we study through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, trust me, I've been doing this for, uh, let's see, 12 years, teaching through the books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and I come across the passage, I go, uh-oh, I do that. 
or I don't do that, and I should. I do that, and I shouldn't, or I don't do that, and I should. And now I have a problem, don't I? If I'm teachable, I say, Lord, help me bring my life in line with your heart. Help me to bring my sin in line with your holiness. It doesn't happen right away all the time. Uh, but the question is, are you even teachable? Are you even willing? So they ask him, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, here's what the law said. The law said if it was a matter of life and death, this is how convoluted they were, you could help someone, but only enough to keep them alive, not enough to actually make them better. Okay, so, so if you were going to administer, like if you're bleeding out, you know, you, you've cut yourself and you're laying on the floor and you're bleeding, I could apply a bandage to you to help save your life, but it couldn't have medicine on it because that might heal you. Do you see how much, do you see folks, they had lost sight of the simplicity of God. And they had gotten all, because there were so many rules, where was the focus? It was all on the rules. So there's someone hurting in need, and they would have to say, well, gee whiz, we'd love to help you, but today's a special day we worship God, so you're on your own. I mean, does that make any sense? Sorry, we're worshiping God, so, uh, you know, we'll just patch you up. We'll be back tomorrow, you know. So he says to them, what man among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. So he doesn't even have to rely on the word of God to uh, combat this one. He simply goes to their own practices. He says, I know you guys. If you have one sheep and that sheep falls into a pit, it's not a matter of life and death. He said, you would lift a finger, you would work, you would heal, or you would minister good to that sheep to get him out of the hole, even though it was against your own rules. So if that's true... Look what Jesus says in verse 12. Pay real close attention to this. He says, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? If you'll do that for a sheep, what about a person in need? Now, I typed this article out. This is CBS News. The the title of the article is, Do You Like Pets Better Than People? Dogs have been the news lately. Uh, This was back written when the whole Michael Vick dogfighting thing happened, and um, this article quotes uh, or cites the billionaire Leona Helmsley that died and left her dog trouble $12 million, and she left her two grandchildren nothing. Most Americans love pets. Do we love them more than we love people? Americans care about pets more than ever today. Nearly two-thirds, 63% of households have a pet, and pet lovers spend $38.5 billion on their pets. That was 2006. That was up from $21 billion 10 years earlier. According to the Census Bureau, in the last decade, the percentage of homes with pets has remained stable, but the amount of money people spend on pets has doubled. We spend several billion dollars more on dog and cat food than on baby food. According to Bob Vettier, the president of the American Pet Products Manufacturing Association, 42% of pets sleep in the same bed as their owners. I know some of you are going, oh, that's us. <laughs> up from 34% in 1998. I found no statistics saying what percentage of people share their beds with other humans, but it's obvious that pets are catching up. Some owners, listen to this, some owners dress their pets in fancy outfits, 
They buy gourmet meals and perfume for their dogs and cats. After consumer electronics, pet care is the fastest growing retail business in America. Some owners pay for cosmetic surgery to get rid of pug noses, droopy eyes, and other doggy features. They're dogs. They're supposed to have doggy features. And there's even a patented testicular implant that sells for $919 a pair to restore the way pets looked before they were neutered. So far, 240,000 pairs have been sold. That's what I said. Are you kidding me? And again, I, I've, you know, I've been telling you guys, I've been spending, just thanks to a good friend of mine, I've been spending the last month down at the, the soup kitchen. And just seeing that, you know, there's people right in our community that have need. And my question is, as, as Jesus says, look, people are more valuable than animals. People, and I know we live in a culture that challenges that. And I know that we want to hide from people, and so we pour out the love of God onto animals instead, and there's a lot of things we can talk about with that. But here's what I'm saying. If you spend more on your pets than you do on charitable giving or giving to the kingdom of God, then maybe that's one of those things you need to reassess. And their law said, hey, on a day of worship to God, it's not right to do good. But look what Jesus said. He said, how much more value is a man than a sheep? And he says, therefore, and I would think he would say, by your own standards, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So not working doesn't mean not doing anything. Look, folks, you can always do good. It is always the right time to do something good for someone in need, to show mercy. Mercy is the one who has provision, giving it to someone who is in need. It is always right to do something good. The Bible says there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. There's no law against those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. You don't ever have to worry about breaking the law when you're doing good. I'm, uh, I, I can't help anybody. I might love too much. I might be too, I don't want to be too kind now. I don't want to be too good. There's no law prohibiting those things, and yet their law had prohibited these things. So, so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Man, right there, he's just so in their face, isn't he? I mean, let me have it. Stretch out your hand. The guy was like, uh, okay, I didn't know what this was going to happen today when I came to church, but here it is. And it was restored as whole as the other. Now, certainly the Pharisees would have been pumped that something got healed, right? I mean, that would have been, wow, see a healing, a miraculous healing right in our midst. They must have been excited. But what does the Bible say? They went out. And uh, they plotted how they would destroy him. That's hard, isn't it? And, and I just have one thing to think about as we wrap this up. One, one more thing. <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, I wonder, we know Jesus was crucified because they envied him. I just have to ask myself, I wonder if they saw a freedom in Jesus that they truly were jealous of that they had become so dependent and so wrapped up in their laws, they didn't know how to live otherwise. They had lost grace, they had lost mercy, and they didn't want anybody else to have it either. And so when they saw the freedom, the liberty of Jesus, the understanding of the Word of God, the understanding of the heart of God, man, I think deep down inside, they wanted it too. 
They wanted it too. And I know this is the cool thing. You know, I'm sure we wrestle in ways I don't even understand with these very same things. You know, we wrestle through these things. We work through these things as a church, trying to understand how the Word of God applies to us and and, and our church function and how we operate and all those things. But I know what? I know one thing. You guys love coming here and wearing shorts. You love being able to wear flip-flops because we know God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. That's what he's concerned with. You can wear a suit to church and have an ugly heart. And you can wear flip-flops and love the Lord. You can have, have tattoos and love Jesus. Now, parents, don't freak out because your kid said Steve says that we can get a tattoo and love Jesus. I'm not saying, well, it's not a sermon on tattoos. My point is, my point is, is that I think there's something that people see when they see just this freedom to love. And we've got to get back. We've got to hold on to, as a church, as the church, we've got to do the simple things well. We've got to love people well. And not get hung up on the details. Folks, again, as I said in the beginning, what really matters? Earthquakes, hurricanes, Are you going to get hung up on whether or not someone's reading the right kind of Bible? I say the right kind of Bible is any Bible you're willing to open up and read. Are you going to get hung up on, oh, Susie wasn't wearing the right shirt. Her shorts were too short today. You know, show mercy, be gracious, love Susie. And let God work it out in her life. Let the elders of the church worry about those things. You guys are free to love. Do the simple things well. You know, I just found out from a friend of mine uh, that, uh, you know, right now is like Baptist church revival time and homecoming and all that stuff. And talking to a friend of mine, uh, and he said, you know, I could not preach at his church because I'm not Baptist. doesn't matter if I believe the word of God or love the Lord with all my heart or do my best and rightly divide it. None of that matters. I'm not Baptist, so I can't preach at that Baptist church. And I'm not condemning, please understand, I'm just showing out some of these areas that we can really be, uh, fall into this trap of substituting man-made, denominationally kind of driven rules and things. Some churches, people signing covenants and all this stuff. I just want to live and enjoy a simple faith. I want to I live the verse that says, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. I don't want to be dependent on media clips and and computers and all that stuff to know what God says to me and to preach. I want to be able to preach without having to be dependent on those things. Are you guys with me? Can we do the simple things well? Can we get? Can we stop? You know, condemning the guiltless and get. Again, I think we do pretty well with that as a whole, don't you? I think that's one of the things that I love about this fellowship is that we we kind of. Uh, skirt around a lot of that Um, but i just want to encourage you guys you know the same simple verses still ring true today love god with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself what else is there what else is there amen let's pray father i just thank you for uh, what you're doing among us today for setting us straight from your word Lord, I'd so desire not the complication of church politics and and committees, but Lord, just the the simple unity that comes from walking in the Spirit. Being uh, directed 
by you personally and internally. Coming to you humbly and willingly. And being free to, to cultivate a love for one another. And let you do the work in their lives, Lord, of change. Father, I pray for this fellowship. I pray for anybody out there today, and myself included, for our wicked hearts, Lord, that tend to, to condemn and to add uh, interpretations and compli- complications to your word. Father, I pray we would just leave those things here. I thank you for Jesus. so that we can have an anchor in this confusing world. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Uh, We're going to close with a song. You can stand, uh, and then Bill will dismiss you.